You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening for this final lecture in the Uncommon Knowledge series with Larissa Horth on the lives, death, and afterlives of social media. It's been an at times exhilarating and an always thought-provoking series this year, and I'm sure tonight with Larissa will be no different. I'm also pleased to note that we are soon to announce next year's lecture series called Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories from 1968 to 1999, which will focus on Australian exhibition histories and how exhibitions have changed the cultural landscape and our understanding of the recent history of contemporary art. So please keep your eyes out on social media and on our website for that program, which will be announced in the next few weeks. To begin this evening, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Bunwurrung, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Before introducing our guest speaker, I'd also like to thank the Melbourne Gin Company for creating a bespoke cocktail for us tonight called the Cambridge Street Fizz, which I hope you're enjoying. Um, and all, as always, we thank and acknowledge our presenting partner, Abercrombie & Kent, um, who are extraordinary travel agents who offer unique adventures around the world, and we very much appreciate their collaboration in the presentation of the series. And I'd also like to thank our event partners, the City of Melbourne, Starwood Whiskey, Melbourne Gin Company and Cappy, as well as our media partners, The Saturday Paper, 3RRR and Broadsheet. Tonight we are really delighted to welcome Larissa Horth, whose lecture will explore the ways in which social media affects how we think about life, death, afterlife and the everyday. As Larissa has noted, in a few years' time there will be more dead people than living people on Facebook. It was only the other day that I got a pop-up notice from Facebook asking me to make decisions about how I'd like to, my social media identity to be managed after my own death, whether I should memorialise it and whether I should appoint someone as executor. It was sobering stuff and it probably said something about my age, but um, <laughs> it's... Um, anyway, um, but on a more perhaps positive note, we've also seen with the recent passing of Sisto Malaspina or Mercamora, for example, the ways in which social media allows diverse communities to come together to express themselves emotionally, to offer appreciation, and to harness community sentiment and exchange. Larissa Horth is an artist, a digital ethnographer, and currently distinguished professor at RMIT University, where she is also the director of the design and creative practice. Since 2000, Larissa has been researching the socio-cultural dimensions of mobile media and gaming cultures in the Asia-Pacific, and has published a dozen books on the topic with publishers including MIT and Oxford University Press. As an artist and curator, Larissa has held recent solo exhibitions including The Art of Play at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in 2015, and was the co-curator with Lisa Byrne of Design and Play at RMIT Design Hub in 2016. Larissa will also be considering the role of social media in, in art practice and the ways in which social play and emotional labour is involved and implicated in creating new communities of digitally intimate publics. Larissa will draw upon her recent book, um, Haunting Hands, co-authored with Katie Kamiski, which investigates practices of loss and trauma in and around mobile media. Larissa will discuss how loss and grieving on social media creates new ways of engaging with and understanding the relationship between life and death in our contemporary society. 
And I should also note a content warning that the lecture will contain a number of sensitive images relating to traumatic events, which I'm sure um, Larissa will introduce um, more directly. So without further ado, would you please join me in welcoming Larissa Horth. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, Okay, so this is the participatory dimension of the talk. Um, so in this talk, you're allowed to use your mobile phone. In fact, you're encouraged to use your mobile phone while I'm talking. Um, I won't see it as bad, I'll actually see it as you participating. So one of the things I would like to ask at the end is um, for us to then go around um, the group and talk through some stories. Now, so if you'd like to hashtag mobile stories of loss, um, we'll be bringing those together at the end. If you don't want to talk about it, put hashtag don't talk, and so it will go onto the feed, but we won't um, be talking through it. The first three people to talk about it will get a free book. Not that I'm trying to bribe anyone, but I am. Anyone that knows me knows that bribery is my mode of operandus. So, um, and as Max said, um, a trigger warning. So um, just a warning that some of the images may trigger particular emotions and that this is a safe space in which we respect each other's feelings and responses to issues around loss and death and grief. So recently, Melburnians experienced a tragedy with the killing of Peregrini's owner, Sisto, which Max mentioned. Many of us found out via our smartphones as thousands of people's social media feeds filled with images and messages from a public grieving of the loss of one of Melbourne's cultural treasures. We witnessed the uneven rhythms of emotional outpour, a tapestry of entangled visibilities and tacit invisibilities, reflecting the different textures and gradations of grief and disclosure. From the everyday citizen mobile media filming of the event as it unfolded, including the crowdsourcing of what is now 160k to help homeless trolley man hero, aka Michael Rogers, to the public curation of Peregrini moments, this tragedy showed how mobile social media has become integral in how we represent, memorialise and experience life, death and loss. It is, as anthropologist Penelope Papalist notes, about new forms of effective witnessing. Witnessing has always been effective. It insists on an intensive relationality of the witnessed and the witness. Effective witnessing makes a space for these memories, subjectivities and possibilities that are otherwise obscured. Mobile media, as one of the most intimate and ubiquitous media of our everyday life, blurs gaps between the experiences and the feelings of the mourners and the mediated witnessing publics. It literally puts effective witnessing in our hands. It heightens our social proprioception, that is, the knowing of the social world through movement and how those often tacit achievements speak to affect and experience. The haptics of smartphones make us mindful of the pivotal role of touch in knowing the world as a sensorial experience. Increasingly, as a, increasingly events are filmed, shared, watched and experienced by and through social media on the smartphone. 
and where this phenomena becomes particular affordances such as the heightened social proprioception, effective witnessing, and ambient intimacies. So in this talk, I want to uh, talk through a series of vignettes about social media and death, both from my personal life and also academic ethnographic work around mobile media stories of loss. For those that don't know, ethnography, like creative social practice, is committed to understanding culture in and through the dynamics of practice. Understanding practice takes time. It's about iterating methods and techniques to capture our participants as experts, experiences and stories. These stories help us make sense of the world. And in heightened times of emotional, emotions such as grief and loss, they also help us connect. Through field work with different cultural contexts, I consider some of the ways in which mobile social media is recreating and recalibrating the conversations and experiences we have around loss and death. I will also explore concepts like what Max mentioned, digital literacy, legacy, selfie eulogies, and the aforementioned uh, effective witnessing. Through the lens of mobile media practices, we can map how grieving processes are changing and how older cultural rituals have become remediated. As many scholars in the death online research have noted, mobile media locate grief and loss in the rhythms of the everyday, and thus framing grief as a process that never ends. In Anglo-Saxon culture, grief has often been compartmentalised. Um, I always say, don't get that word wrong, don't get that word wrong, and as soon as it comes to it, I'm going to get that word wrong, um, to rituals like funerals. For those in the room who have lost someone, you will know that grief never goes away. And it has its own rhythms and textures and cycles. Grief reminds us of those who have departed. It reminds us of how precious life is. Social mobile media puts death back into the everyday, weaving a narrative feed that moves in and out of our rituals and routines. As death scholars have noted, on, have noted we, are fully, we are yet to fully understand the implications of what, our data, what happens to our data when we die. For example, according to some forecasts, social media platforms like Facebook will soon become places for memorialization, a space for the data of the dead. But what happens to this data? Facebook is already researching this area in what they call their compassionate research studies um, with scholars such as Jed Brubaker. Recently, death, the tacit concept that has kept so many Freudian analysis employed in secular cultures has become less taboo. In fact, over the last month, Melbourne has seen a renaissance in perception shifts. For instance, during November, the Arts House has been showcasing a variety of performances in and around how we experience and talk about death, including the work of Peter Murray, there she is, and Lara Thomas, to name a few. This Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. This phenomena has led Arts um, Hub to note death in art. It's so hot now, right now. But beyond this momentary, by the way, that was the only joke in the talk. So if you didn't <laughs> laugh then, that was your moment. Okay, so just saying, just saying, okay. But beyond this momentary trend of hotness, there are many creatives exploring how we might initiate, change, co-curate and intervene conversations around dying and death. For example, 
Tanya Fivelash's poetic the, the Death Letters Project. The Death Letters Project asks 50 Australians to write a letter responding to these two questions. What is death? What happens when we die? Um, and it's really beautiful because you actually get to see handwriting. Oh, that lost art, handwriting. Um, I put this example of Philip Adams here because his droll response, if you can read, he's like, you know, after death there's like nothing, nada, it's over. Um, while surrounded by African masks, which are all about death and afterlife. So there's a bit going on between what he's saying and what the environment is saying. Just saying, hashtag, okay. Um, Design thinkers like Leah Heiss and Marius Forley have been developing a co-design approach around tacit tools to help various stakeholders in the field create different ways to have the conversation around death. Peter Murray dun, 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 draws from her decades in theatre and live art to promote community conversation and to build capacity around issues such as illness and ageing, dying and dementia and grief and loss. She is co-founder of the community advocacy project Groundswell, which explores ways of talking about death to create social change and death literacy. Pia Interlandi co-designs with bereaving family members to make garments for the terminally ill patients. These garments are seen as invitations to promote discussion of sharing emotions and stories. And so, what can the practices in around and around social media teach us about doing death and dying differently? How can the haunting data provide insights into social futures in which dying is more integrated into everyday life? Unexpected things happen in our life that reshape us. January 2011 was one of those moments for me. When my brother suddenly died at age 47, I found myself suffocating with grief. It was through my brother's smartphone and social media that I held on to my brother. And this is where you start to see about mobile media being about that kind of witness and also the companion. Through the GPS data on his phone, I was able to walk his last 24-hour steps. I walked them again and again, trying to make sense in the senselessness. In the dark hours, I was sure that his smartphone was haunted. It was the linchpin between this world and the other. It was the last thing he had touched. I felt torn about looking at it. It was his private life. And yet, the other part of me worried that his privacy might be invaded in his afterlife by others. Through social media, I was able to connect with these international networks to organise the funeral. The social media feed became a way for archiving and memorialising the messages I was too shocked to absorb. Over the following months, in the grip of grief and loss, I would turn to these messages. And yet I didn't post. I started to notice the unevenness of outpour. It made me aware of how social media amplifies particular forms of performativity. What Lemaire might call platformtivity. Tropes of media vi visibility and invisibility. Those that were most visible weren't necessarily the most intimate and vice versa. 
I became acutely aware that more understanding was needed into how people's different cultural, social, generational backgrounds inform modes of grieving, media literacy, and etiquette. As I was trying to make sense of my own personal grief, my collaborative research in Japan took a turn. In March 2011, the traumatic events of Japan's tsunami, earthquake, and Fukushima disaster, known as 311, flooded the world with its raw and effective mobile media footage. Images like this one filled people's social media feeds, flooding us with intimate and raw media. The mobile media galvanised the public globally, firstly feelings of shock and then action. It blurred lines between the mourners and the witnessing, evoking that idea of effective witnessing. What became apparent during and after the disaster was the crucial role of mobile media, not just as witness and companion, but also for mobilising the public. For many, the networks and the when the power and the networks went down, left them carrying their mobile phones that weren't actually working. And yet they cradled their mobile phones as their last connector to their family. That many had to walk home miles and miles and miles holding that mobile phone as if it was connected to their family. During the time, the general public found out that their national broadcaster, NHK, which is like the ABC equivalent, had deliberately withheld information about the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster on the request of the government. Now, this is the only other joke. Can you imagine in Australia the government saying to ABC, can you just not tell the public about this really crucial, damaging thing that are gonna, is going to kill people? And the ABC going, sure, uh, Who's the government? Who's the PM? Scott Morrison, okay. Yeah, sure, we'll do that, sir. We respect you. Um, no, not happening. But it happened in Japan. Up until that um, stage, millions of people had trust in traditional broadcasting. After this event, the public moved away and they backlashed against traditional media, turning by in the millions towards social media like Twitter, Line and Instagram. These media would become key to how activism post-311 would emerge. 311 highlights the ways in which mobile media can be viewed as a lens for and of intimacy. It amplifies intimacy. It is both a witness and a companion. In ethnographic fieldwork dating back to 2000, when the first smartphone was introduced in Japan as iMode, participants noted how the phone helped to de develop deeper bonds of continuity. It allowed them to say things that they couldn't say face to face. As one of the young participants noted, I don't know how my parents got together without it. <laughs> studying the mobile phone over two Okay, that was the last joke, okay. Um, <laughs> studying the mobile phone over two decades has highlighted the way in which it functions as a vehicle for continuity between older and new forms of ritual, intimacy and placemaking. Two decades ago, studies on mobile media focused on life. But now, mobile media accompanies us into death and beyond. Over the past two decades, I've been studying mobile media. It's constantly been used as a tool for placemaking. That is, co-curating stories, experiences, and ways of being in the world across material, physical, and digital cartographies. Take, for example, this Hello Kitty, or this Katai, um, littered with Hello Kitties. For the owner, Yoko, Hello Kitty 
Each Hello Kitty was a memento from a particular place shared with a particular person. She could go through and tell a long story about all of these different places that she'd been in those moments. She was literally carrying her memories on the outside of the mobile phone. Now we tend to carry them on the inside. Um, it's, and, it's, you know, she could say, oh, this is, this is uh, uh, Yokohama, Hello, Hello Kitty, that I went with my mother before she became sick, etc., etc." And so literally here we see the mobile phone as an extension of the charm bracelet, where everywhere we go, we start to collect those memories. A metaphoric caravan of special memories. So Yoko's Keitai not only highlights how the mobile is about placemaking and ways of being and moving in the world, but also how the digital is embedded in the material, and that's really important to remember. Also, you couldn't not lose that phone, really. <laughs> Given the dramatic shift in social mobile media in Japan, we collaborated with Japanese artists like the Japanese boat uh, association to make play, a place-making game that explored the public's feelings and experiences in a place, in, of place in a post-311 Japan. We placed a shipping container in a park and ran a series of wayfaring activities to get people to reflect on the invisible underground streams. And this was part of an ARC linkage. I should say this linkage was the one that Abbott attacked um, when he got into power and he was saying, like, you know, this is like the kind of thing I will not support because it has two things I don't believe in, climate change and art. So there you go. Sorry, that was another joke. I didn't even realise. I've put all these political jokes in here. <laughs> okay. One of the activities was a game in which players had 10 minutes to photo and share social on social media art about water that was found in the park. We littered the park with this artwork. Many of the players confused rubbish with art, and so you had people like seriously going up to rubbish and photographing it and giving it really... And then people kind of just ignoring these really famous artworks that were in the garden. Um, and, and with that, you also had the blurring between what was game and non-game because it was in a public space, so you had all these kind of people, kind of bystanders walking through. The game asked players to reflect upon what water means in a post-311 life. 3.11 demonstrated the way in which social media is changing how we share, narrate, and experience loss and death. 3.11 social media illustrated how life and death could be entangled in intimate and mundane ways in everyday life. As death scholars such as Gibbs and Cohn and Arnold and, and Nansen, Brubaker, Graham, etc. have noted, what becomes apparent is that social media puts death and dying into everyday narratives in the form of feeds, reminding us of how death used to be more commonly discussed. 3.11 also highlights how social media, mobile media is a witness and companion in life, death and afterlife. As time passed, stories began to emerge about relatives receiving text messages from their deceased ancestors. The idea that mobile media is haunted is not new or specific to Japan. Mobile media magnifies cultural beliefs. In the case of Japan and Buddhism, there is a long history of the belief that deceased ancestors can haunt, haunt everyday objects. However, mobile media, with their multisensorial and ubiquitous dimensions, provide different forms of contact and connection, both literal and metaphoric. The symbolic dimension of the phone can't be underestimated as illustrated by Japan's wind phone, 
a phone box set up near the Fukushima disaster site for bereaved people to visit and talk to their loved ones. Examples of inanimate objects being haunted include the Japanese concept of Shinri Shashin, the name given to the photos in which spirits appear. More recently, there has been a rise of Shinto priest blessing technologies of people who are dying alone. So for these people that are dying alone, they need to get their ancestors out of these objects. And so priests are coming along and wishing these spirits away. This is but one of the many emerging industries in Japan trying to grapple with a burgeoning aging society in which many people are dying alone. Some of these lessons are transferable while others are culturally specific. Japan is not alone in its manifestation of rituals around the haunting of the mobile phone, social media and technology more generally. In our book, I collaborated with a psychologist and we explored different cultural contexts and generational uses to understand the multiple ways in which mobile technology is perceived as haunted, especially as a vehicle for witnessing and for companionship. Here it becomes a repository for memories in which data of the dead is constantly interwoven into moments of the living. In interviews with the bereaved, we found that participants from different cultural backgrounds have various ways of negotiating their after-death communication through the mobile phone. Mobile phones afforded a blurring of boundaries between life, death, and afterlife, a phenomenon that psychologists have identified. I oh, see this is all part of the... This, that, was, that, was, that was planned, by the way, just, just saying. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, and this is what psychologists have talked about in terms of transitional rituals that seek to create continuity with existing bonds. Um, and it was interesting as an anthropologist working with a psychologist because that's when I actually realised there's some actually methodological and ideological um, frictions there. You know, the, the psychologist believes that the emotions come from within and the anthropologist goes, no, it's all culturally constructed, so we would, like, deconstruct each of our sentences. Um, Anyway, that's another whole story. But I want to give you an example from an Arab Orthodox Christian US student, Farah, and her um, sister had died. And so she says, in that year and a half after her sister's death, I used to talk to her like she was still around, like she hadn't really gone yet. So I would text her, hi, how are you? What are you up to today? Every day, things like that. We would text, I don't know, I would text her often, as often as when she was alive. The interviewer asks, and did you anticipate her responding? Yeah, all the time. I remember I texted her one time about this joke. We used to text about this idea of being wild. And, I, and she said, like, well, I anticipated. And I said, yeah, of course I'm wild. That's what you love. And she texted back and said, yes, that's what I love. Stuff like that. I was having a conversation in my head and the texts were on the phone. I mean, for most of the times. Back then, I could have sworn that she was answering back. But now, I don't know. Was she answering or not? As far as story illustrates, there's a blurry line between the actual and perceived connections with the dead. Here, the mobile phone is key in the feelings of connection and continuity. In field work, we investigated what we called 
mobile emotive rituals. Mobile emotive rituals focus on how mobile devices can be a witness, companion, and also mobiliser, accompanying us as we move through loss and dying processes. These processes focused on an amplification and intensification, transition and letting go, and also the continuing bonds with the deceased. This is like so 2014. Anyway, while mobile media extend existing rituals and practices, they also create new forms of literacy and etiquette. Take, for example, the selfies at funeral phenomena, which there's um, some colleagues at Melbourne Uni who've, who've written quite a bit about this. The phenomena highlighted how mobile and social media often becomes a scapegoat for inappropriate and misunderstood forms of behaviour. Um, it became clear that the selfie was a vehicle for understanding different media literacies and ways of effective witnessing. Um, Brooke Vent has talked about in her book, she channels uh, Marshall McLuhan when talking about the selfies, and she actually argues that we take selfies in an act of misrecognition, that we take that picture in order to recognise and to return to that um, place in the hope that we will have greater understanding. Take, for example, Obama's selfie at Mandela's funeral. And from the look, I, what I love about this photograph is Michelle. He is so in the doghouse that night. Like, he is, it's over. Like, she's... <laughs> what the funeries, uh, selfies at funeral phenomena demonstrates is the power of the selfie as a barometer for popular culture, as a creative expression and a creative form of subjectivity, and also for contemporary forms of citizenship and effective publics. I now want to turn to another example of how social mobile media is used as a witness and companion, but also as a vehicle for mobilising publics into action through the tragic tragedy of the selfie, uh, sorry, the Seoul ferry disaster. Most of you might be familiar with this event, which happened in April 2014. An overloaded ferry was carrying 300 people, and it capsized off South Korea. On the ferry was over 250 high school children. The boat was only supposed to carry 100 people. The government and ferry company were slow to respond, and when they did, they underestimated the amount of people. In the end, everyone bar the captain and some crew perished. As the event started to unfold, young teenagers began to film. Hundreds of selfies filled the networks. Parents received distressing messages and alerted the authorities. Some of the children who died filmed their death and self-eulogies via smartphones. In these images, you can witness different forms of recognition. So some are actually presently beginning to grieve their lives and they start to call out to their parents while others mock the severity of the situation with, you know, peace, etc. Many of the high school children's messages were received after they had passed away. One father spoke of receiving messages throughout the night as if his deceased son was still trying to ma maintain contact and connection. Many of these stories of haunting selfies and messages continued to emerge days after the disaster. They reflect the role of the mobile as a vehicle for continuity bonds and transition. The afterlives of the tragic selfies to serve as a witness and companion 
for the highly effective memorials that spread, quickly spread. Often, and they were used to kind of consolidate public, global public outcry. The public were grieving. Then they became angry. They went after the fairy CEO who committed suicide. Then they went after the government. The impeachment of the government was directly linked to this event. Data haunts long after we pass. Mobile media witness, accompany, and mobilize. Its gestures and textures affecting our experiences of being in the world, both digital and material. In February 2016, when my mother died after battling cancer, I was left with acres of materials to organize. As an artist, my mum was committed to recycling and ecology. As I sorted through the mountains of material cultures, I became painfully aware that this type of grieving ritual around a pre-digital generation would disappear. She didn't need a digital legacy provision in her, in her will. She was notably absent in the noisy, busy streets of social media. In the future, it would, wouldn't be the material, but the digital traces I would need to try and collect and curate in an act of loving memorialization. I would be going through companies like Facebook and Instagram, negotiating their compassionate research labs, and trying to navigate copyright issues and access in an added layer of complexity in the memorialization process. It would be more public, but no less intimate. Melbourne's uni scholars, um, such as Tamir um, Cole, Martin Gibbs, and Michael Arnold, are exploring how the digital is transforming the funeral industry and the future implications for data of the dead. Facebook is putting money into what it calls compassion research to highlight implications of stewarding the deceased data by loved ones. Take, for example, the case of Holly Gazard, which Elaine Casket highlights in her new book. Holly was a young hairdresser. She was also a victim of domestic abuse. When she finally broke up from, with her violent boyfriend, he killed her. Her Facebook images were full of her and her boyfriend come murderer. Imagine how her family felt. Every time they went to look at her posts from her friends, they were reminded of the killer. Holly didn't have a digital legacy plan, and so Facebook couldn't give her parents access to edit the site, which was full of images of the murderer. The story went to the papers. A web sheriff contacted the family and said, within 24 hours, check the site. The family did, and he, the murderer, had disappeared. But we all can't expect wet sheriffs to save our day, or that of our family. We do need to take digital legacy seriously. Core to the logic of mobile media is co-presence. As some of the examples have illustrated, mobile social media are helping us to reflect the natural processes of grieving as something that moves in and out of our daily rhythms. It amplifies our feelings in effective and networked ways. Mobile media helps with feelings around continuity bonds, sometimes through perceived connections with the deceased, other times through allowing the bereaved to feel connected through their memories of the deceased as part of their everyday feeds. 
Now, I'd like to open it to the audience and we can put the social media up and see if anyone has been doing their job as participatory members of the community. <laughs> Let's see how we go. Books, we've got books going free, we've got, we've got cocktails still going. Um, so w with those images, we'll only get those that want to talk about their images on there. Have we got anything there? Anyone? Nothing. Nada. Audience, really? Really, audience? <laughs> okay, yeah. And when at the wake, um, I, um, we were, before he died, my brother was heading off to South America and he said to John, um, Would you like me to spread your ashes um, in, South, in Machu Picchu? And John thought that was a great idea. So at the wake, I put it out to everyone in the audience. Um, mm. And I had some vials of the um, ashes there. And what became, um, everyone just took all the, on the day, I had a, probably about 10 vials. They all went and people were asking me for more. And basically what I did was, um, as each person post, um, sent me the images of where they might have been around the world, um, I put it up on Facebook as John Wood's Geographical Ashes. Okay. And yeah. did a posting based on that idea. Yeah. And it worked really well because um, it enabled me to grieve, enabled mm. our friends to grieve. And over the year, there was probably about 30 or 40, maybe more, mm. um, areas where around the world, Australia, all over the place, and that, that's, that's something I did. Mm. Um, and today I got something from my cousin who was in um, India, another uh, posting. So it's been ongoing yeah. um, and it's been really good. Yeah. Mm. It's a good connection. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else would like to? Oh, we've got privacy issues here. <laughs> Do you want to get them? Yeah. Yes, yep. It wasn't related to death. It was, it was related to loss and, um, and, and that was during the flood events of 2011 where um, as, as someone who experienced that event, um, the mobile phone was very much my companion. <laughs> And as a process of memorialisation, um, well, it began just why did this happen? But it turned into a, an art project and a kind of a, a called Wandering Cloud. And um, <clears throat> that worked with four different communities and um, a digital storytelling sort of community building project. So that's what I posted, but you can't see it. I've got privacy issues on there. Feed, is it? So nothing's coming up in the feed? Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. yeah. I, I posted mine on Twitter, but I don't think it worked. Okay. Um, I, Damn, I see, this social media, it works in theory, but not in practice. This I is did a couple <laughs> of tweets, but my tweets don't seem to have worked. <laughs> well, 
And mine isn't, mine isn't a very, mine's a very vernacular kind of example. Like, I remember I used to, my grandmother died in 2013, and we used to do social media posts together because I was trying to teach her about, you know, Facebook, and I used to go and visit her. She was living um, in Gippsland, and I used to go and visit her regularly, and we used to do... So I often see, I'm reminded of her and my other deceased family members through Facebook quite a lot, and that, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I miss them all the time still. Mm. And um, one of the memories that really sticks with me from my grandma is when her, my granddad had died and she used to, she thought he, he still lived there and used to say to me, I can still see her saying, Norman's wearing that sweater again. That, why does he wear that terrible brown sweater? And he just looks at me, he hasn't spoken to me all day. He's just sitting there and looking at me. And so those, so there, there, she had, she was clearly haunted by him all the time. And so I think social media connects me to those, those stories and her, I don't know, her experiences of haunting. And the, so I think, I don't know, I think it is very affectively powerful in that respect. So that was my very, not very interesting anecdote that I tweeted. <laughs> but here I am for participation. Every story is interesting. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know how there's the, the cleaners that come along and they clean up Facebook for anything that they might think might be triggering. I wonder if they're that clever that they're actually like, there's an event happening at Acker, you've got to clean up that stuff. Like, there we go. Okay. <laughs> it happened. So <laughs> some has been cleaned up. <laughs> Anyone else? Or any other comments or... Uh, mine is a lot less joyous than everyone else's, so sorry in advance for being a massive downer. Um, but I think the, the memories thing on Facebook, you know how it pops up and says, this is what you were doing five years ago, can actually be so painful and triggering and horrible, and it's really hard to... Um, to see that, and so my, my ex-girlfriend cut me out of her life because of her religion, and she pops up, and she cut out everyone in her life that wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, um, and she pops up all the time for us as, this is what you were doing five years ago, when she was able to live normally in secular society, when she valued her education and all of these things. Um, and she just completely cut herself out of all social media. So it feels like a loss to all of us. Mm. Um, and, you know, she's, like, quite um, brainwashed now. So the person that we know is gone. And those memories that pop up and go, oh, you should share this thing that was happening mm. a few years ago is, like, can be heartbreaking when mm. you're on the way to work, you're on a train or something, and you see this, this memory of this person you loved who's now gone. And it kind of, it like puts it into some cute little video with love hearts around it or whatever. Balloons and coming off. Yeah, and, and it's so, um, it's, it, there's just no nuance in that. And Facebook mm. just assumes that all memories are happy ones, which is, mm. um, I think, really difficult and like strange territory that hasn't been explored much. But, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And there, I mean, they used to have, the algorithms used to not look out for, like, for example, p people who had deceased and they used to, you know, you'd get a kind of memory from somebody who was like, remember this person? It's like, yeah, but they're dead. Like, yeah, you know, what you if shouldn't you be doing this. Yeah. So I, they, they now actually have worked, part of the compassion research is actually to tweak the algorithm so that people don't get those kind of triggering 
things mm. happening in the feed, but the fact is that these are algorithms. They, you know, they don't really have the nuance of understanding how certain memories have certain kind of effects. They, they really, they understand effects, but not affects. Yeah. 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 It's something that a lot of us have struggled with, so I just thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hi. Are there still books? <laughs> There's still books? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, actually, sorry. I should have... <laughs> I'm sorry, I needed the bribe. <laughs> um, uh, mine's a... <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, I guess mine's more of a, a slightly cultural one. Uh, when my mother passed away, I put a Facebook message up because it was the only way that I could tell people that weren't Korean. So the funeral had everyone that was Korean, but um, I wasn't able to invite anyone that wasn't. So just that kind of um, split between cultures, I think. Yes. And it's, it, it is really useful for doing those kind of compartmentalising different narratives and different public, effective publics in, in, in that way. That can be, yeah, a really powerful way of those that aren't, can't go along can still be involved in that process, which is really important. There's, um, there's been some work around, like, for example, with carers who work with the elderly and the, in aged care and what happens when, for example, they might be caring for this person for, like, three years, and but then they're their carer, they're not their family, and then the person might go off to hospital and never return again. And it's like, well, then who looks after the grief of that worker? Because they aren't allowed to have the privileges and of access that, say, family members can have, um, and yet they are still feeling that grief because they've been so part of that person's life. So there's, there's various way, um, unacknowledged grief that, in a sense, that social media can help to kind of work around. Definitely. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> Christine? Yes, exactly. Yes. I mean, that's what we found through um, our field work was it was definitely helping put it back in the everyday um, because you've had, as you said, like over 100 years, this kind of in Anglo culture of compartmentalising. Um, I mean, it's very interesting, like if you look at, say, like Maori culture where they actually bring the casket home and people like, and they, they stay in the home for days. And so you're actually there with the dead body. And so that actually helps a lot of that kind of grieving process and acknowledgement and recognition. Um, when you don't have that, when the body is taken away and you don't get to view it, that can leave a lot of those continuity bonds um, kind of torn and, and, you know, kind of in need of um, finding ways to contact. So, um, and so social media really does play that role in, in that sense, but it can have quite um, adverse effects as well and that's something that once you put death in every day it is going to have triggering and that's why I needed to have that triggering thing at the beginning to acknowledge that it will but yeah yeah thank you okay hey um thanks Larissa for a great presentation I, I just had a quick question about um you talk about social media devices as being used as a tool to help witness mm -hmm. um and that to me starts talking about ideas of to help see 
Um, but I think there's other things as well. I was wondering about maybe some comments on the notion that um, of like insta repeat, how you know as um, as you're in the process of taking selfies or as you're in the process of you know engaging in travel or mourning and things like that, mm -hmm. to a degree you're actually just creating um, sometimes repeated images. You're kind of it, it's not really a process necessarily of creatively or um, or finding originality or finding a movement through it, but maybe a process rather of um, uh, moving towards a uh, uh, societal normative space or like a space whereby there's a, um, a comforting image which you're trying to move to. So I'm not certain, maybe if you could have a few comments on ideas of um, the, the process of actually clearly seeing as an individual or attempting to see through something and witnessing something um, in relation to the idea of this notion of how social media creates um, like the one image, the, the thousands of Instagram um, travel photos that can kind of come to be the same thing or the, mm -hmm. um, that sort of maybe commercialized um, point of view. I'm not sure if that, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to form a question here. Yeah, but, no, no, um, no, I mean, and this it's is- It's a bit confused, but the, the, yeah. No, no, it's a, I mean, this is the issue that we're grappling with and I think having this conversation around death really brings it to the forefront is that idea of, how, what are we doing with all this data that we're producing? Like, we are producing, so is that kind of what your question is about in terms of the Yeah, to a degree, I think also like the, the idea of witnessing and seeing something um, uh, as an individual versus maybe um, taking a photo just to grieve in a particular way that yeah. might. You mean the non-share? To a degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, or so just one, falling into a, um, a yeah, I, yeah. I need more time. One, no, one <laughs> of the things, no, 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 I mean, it's a great question because we're, you know, there's been a lot of kind of work done around the fact that contemporary culture is, a, is about a sharing culture and that it, the, the idea of sharing pervades every part of contemporary culture. But the reality is, like, what you're having is people starting to non-share. Mm. And this is actually, some colleagues and I in Japan have started to look at that very thing after 3.11 where you got a lot of sharing, you got a lot of activism and mobilisation then you've started getting people not wanting to share. Mm. And the reasons for not sharing are really complex. And as researchers, it's really hard to research the non-share because the share, you can kind of go to a site and you can look at, but how do you actually get people to talk about the things that they've edited and deleted? And, and this is actually gonna be, it's a bit like that idea that you know what you leave out, the stories you leave out say as much about your story as yeah. the ones that you put in. So how can we actually think about that non-share as an important part of how we do, how we, do, how we move through the world? Mm -hmm. So where is that option to not share the, um, the selfie eulogy or where is that? Um, and, and they're very real questions that have issues on our privacy and, and thinking about um, the environmental effect. I mean, people aren't really thinking about how much data this is creating like those big data, you know, like I love the pictures of the, those data places, you know, with the glowing lights and they look like they're, you know, sci-fi, but they're actually really frightening in terms of how much, um, you know, how much energy they're using and that people aren't thinking about that. They're so busy kind of documenting that it's kind of like, that it's not necessarily something you think, oh my God, I'm adding to this environmental kind of issue and things like that. So, but yeah, the non-share is really, really important and a really hard, um, thing to study, but needs to be studied. So thanks, that's an awesome question. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's been a really interesting, thought-provoking evening, so thank you. Uh, I'm thinking about it um, in terms of that natural process that we have around memories and, and that fading of memories and that 
that side of grieving and how this is very different. It's very raw and real and, and you're continually going to come up again. Mm. I'm, I work as a psychologist and so you know, I work with grief and loss yeah. very commonly and, and some people can't resolve as easily. I wonder how much impact this has on that now that we're going forward into a space where people have documented so, so much. Mm. And, and every time an image comes back, it brings all the memories. It's so evocative for people. Mm. You know, and, and where does that take the, the headspace, the heart space? This is where I need Katie in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I can only answer it, you know, because she was the, she's the psychologist and I'm the anthropologist and we, you know, kind of have different ideas of thinking about the continuity bonds. But, I, I mean, one of the things that we were really becoming very mindful of was that the fact that it was changing the kind of conversations and, and emotions that people were having around grieving processes. And I mean, the obvious thing that we found was that, you know, it allowed for more everyday conversations and more um, less taboo. So that, that was something that we thought was really good. But as like um, the person over here was talking about, it did actually allow for a const, uh, a kind of, if we think about it in terms of affect, and if you think of like Sarah Ahmed's notion of affect as this prickly thing that is on our skin and, and goes through our body, it can actually create those kind of, you know, that stinging of the skin yeah. that actually stings more and more and Absolutely. burns. Absolutely. Over so, time, yeah. does this, you know, increase rather than fade? Exactly. And I've yeah. heard of people finding it too much and just switching social media off. Yes. They don't want to be confronted yeah. and it becomes traumatic to be in that space. Yeah. And so I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because there, there was a lot of, in the early, like, you know, a decade ago, there was work around um, looking at making sites, online sites, just for about deceased and stuff, because they thought that it would be more useful for, in Anglo cultures, this idea, compartment. It's so interwoven, and that's the thing. And I think the thing that, like, when I sh was showing about um, the artist using, um, you know, th changing our conversations around death, I think, you know, we should try and think about... Uh, we, it's, we can't just say, get rid of Facebook, it's evil. I mean, it is evil, but, you know, like, um, it, it's a reality of our everyday life, and it's about how we turn and change those conversations. So it's about a recalibration and understanding that there are deep ambivalences in what it does, because it does elicit things that we don't want to remember and so it makes that memorialize yes yeah so it makes it changes how we memorialize things and that has good and bad effects so thank you yeah <laughs> we've got one here and then oh, here okay. thanks so much larissa really thank fascinating you. talk thank and, you um Actually, the Facebook e is evil. Yeah, yeah, it's, good. it's a good segue <laughs> because I guess I was I was that was really a hashtag in, in your comment on um, and I guess my my anecdote it's not so much about death it's about life. So I, um, as you know, relatively recently had a baby and I got a I got the um, Facebook memories video uh, sent to me complete with music where you know you get this kind of. Um, uh, idyllic picture of your life with the baby Happy. popping up in all these different poses. And, and I have to say, I felt quite violated yes. by the video. <laughs> and, yes. I was just, and the music, and it was, it's interesting. I think mm. it's the managed memories is, is what's concerned me. And I'm a, you know, I'm a really big social media user. Mm. Um, you know, I think it enables us in all sorts of ways. And I think you, you've really shown in amazing ways how Death is becoming much more every day again for us all, and I think that's a fantastic thing in lots mm. of ways. But I'd be interested to hear more about the Facebook Compassion Unit mm. and how much they're 
critical or reflexive mm. around some of these, these kind of algorithmic managed memories. Yeah. And the, you know, they're all yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. I mean, the, um, you know, you could say that's the neoliberal corporatization of our memories in, you know, like in these kind of things, like I would not use that font for that thing. You know, like it's really, I find that font really offensive. Um, you know, it is, there's Jed, Breaker, who's the key person doing that compassion research, he is, um, he's a good guy. Like, he's actually working, he's like a femocrat. He's like going into the bureaucracy of the deep, dark centre of evil and trying to get them to think about the ethics of, you know, privacy and of data and things like that. So he's actually on the good side. Um, and so it's good to have people like him who, you know, they, he could have chosen the academic path and not to go into the industry and actually, you know, kind of grapple with their issues. But he, yeah, so his work I think is really useful in, in pushing some of those arguments about like um, the the ethics um, and, and what ethical dimension. I mean, the Holly Gazard um, example is really, you know, like that made me so angry at Facebook. I was almost like, well, I'm leaving Facebook. Oh, hang on, let me just check that. You know, like, because it was so much part of my habits. But, um, you know, it was very much about, like, um, you know, the fact that they couldn't, even though when it went public, they still couldn't actually take it down was deeply offensive because it was like it had effective publics, you know, it had effective witnessing. People were outraged by it and Facebook was doing this kind of high and mighty, like, oh, no, we're in the best interest of our users, you know, blah, 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 you know, Californian um, kind of speak, when it was actually, no, no, it needs to be, and, and this is the thing because it c cuts at the kind of core of privacy and how we think about privacy and privacy isn't something that, it's just like a kind of corporate closure kind of thing. It's actually something we do and we constantly do and we constantly iterate on privacy and they're constantly kind of violating as the examples that you, um, you illustrated. And it's really important that we have mechanisms to um, kind of call them out on it and actually get them to recalibrate what they're doing. So, I mean, I think, you know, when people, they, they have trialled particular things that really failed, um, and that's the great thing, is that people walk, and then they kind of go, oh, no, we're, Facebook is becoming, you know, haunted, and no one's here anymore, so we better stop doing those things that people are finding really offensive. So, um, yeah, I think, does that kind of answer? or no? <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, Jed Brillbreaker's work is amazing in that area of really... I must uh, check him out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, there's a question. Um, causing people to stop connecting face to face, like interpersonally and especially, I feel like, like we've gotten, you know, I guess people would have had this when phones became a thing, like the normal telephone, like you have a conversation through the phone that you, you know, you stop having that face to face and now you've got text or mm. Facebook messenger where you're, you know, you go through a, like a breakup or you find out about somebody's death, mm -hmm. like, in, and you don't have that interpersonal connective, like I don't, and I think I really dislike social media and, and don't tend to use it for mm -hmm. that because it feels like such a disconnection and an easy way, like it is definitely helping people to further connect who didn't have that as an option before. Mm. But for people who do have interpersonal skills, whether you just choose the easy way out mm. and... I guess what the implications are for, and, and around death, whether, you know, you don't grieve together as people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, 
Anglo-Saxon people generally have an issue with that anyway, but yeah. 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 No, I mean, and you touched on a lot of great points, which really are, um, I suppose the first thing that I'd, I suppose I'd want to unpack in that is that I think it's really important to think, to understand that intimacy ha is something that's always mediated. Um, and that, you know, before there was social media, there was letter writing or there was, and that actually so sometimes those mediations actually help us provide us with deeper, you know, because there's moments of longing, you know, where you're not in the face of that person. And I think... Yeah. Yep. But even even face to face, there is a mediation happening there. So like my memories would be mediating my experience with you, which would be feeling you'd have a different perception of this than I would because of our different experiences, our memories, our, and, and that's something to be really mindful when thinking about mobile media as an amplifier for intimacy, is that intimacy itself is such a complex thing where face-to-face -face isn't necessarily the best in all cases, and we have a long history. I mean, art has a long history of showing how, um, you know, mediated ways of intimacy actually can grow bonds stronger and you know like and it depends on cultural context like Japan as I showed with that example of like um, you know the, the young people as I call them um, you know like where they were like um, you know actually saying that they don't know how their parents got together because in a, J Japan where there's a lot of things that you can't say to someone face to face it actually allows as a medium their ways to say things that they couldn't actually say and that becomes a powerful role for creating new vocabularies around um, intimacy. But I mean, your point is, so having thought about intimacy like that, I mean, your point is very real in terms of, and I think a lot of people feel that, is that social media can um, deepen uh, uh, close relationships, but it can also make shallow, um, distant relationships. You know? so, so for example, when you're, um, you have someone overseas where you can't contact them any other way. Sometimes that can be a really useful way of, if you have a bit, like I have a best friend in, in Spain, for example, and you know, like her social media coming up in mine makes me feel like she is part of my everyday, which is really comforting for me. But then I also kind of think it really, you know, like there's people where I, you know, see them all the time, but I don't actually converse with them that much, but they're really heavy on my social media feed. And, that, and so then, the, then I'm like, oh, there's an unevenness happening here. And I think that was the point that I was talking about in terms of those visibilities and invisibilities. And I think there is platformtivity. There is certain platforms massage particular types of visibility and invisibility. And it's, it's about being mindful of what they are massaging. Um, but yeah, so I totally take your point. I, I agree. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> Any other? I just wanted to comment on the comment before me. So I think you said because of social media, we don't grieve together. And I just have a cultural observation. So I'm Arab and in Arab culture, right, 24 hours after someone dies, you bury them. Then right after that, you have a three day wake. Mm. And the announcements for that are usually made via newspaper and or on banners placed on the street stating, mm you know, so-and-so died, this is when they're going to be buried, and this is when their wake is going to happen. And the mm. idea is for anyone who wants to grieve to come um, mm. to the burial and or to the wake. But now, although that practice is still happening, I think it's being taken over by social media postings of those announcements. And I've had friends in the past few years who, although are heartened by the response of people showing up to the burial and or to the wake, it's also very overwhelming because mm. you have all of these people who you don't know are trying mm. to support 
support you, but then you don't have enough time to actually grieve, particularly in the early days mm. after the death. And so there's, I think it's a cultural difference as to whether or not it brings people to grieve together, but there yeah. could also be some downsides to that happening. Mm. Definitely, yeah. I mean, there's cultural differences. There's also individual differences as well. People do grieve differently. Um, and I think that's the really important thing when coming to that space is understanding that to respect those different um, different ways because none of there's not a right or wrong way. Definitely, yeah. It's yeah. Well, thank you, Larissa, so much for your talk, and um, please join me in thanking Larissa for tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, active audience, for your social media. You have been listening to an ACA podcast recorded by ACA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.